You're listening to Turn Learning Into Practice, where we spread the word to a broad community of evidence-based healthcare providers focused on improving patient outcomes. Hi there, this is Dr. Balarao with our first of a series of exciting short podcasts that we're going to call Not Just Informed. These short, rapid podcasts are going to be a platform where I quickly provide evidence updates from the evolving world of diagnosis and management of common spinal and extraspinal conditions. Each of these short podcasts are intended to help you, our listeners, actually change their practice behaviors with the goal of improving patient outcomes. That is, after all, a central, central mission of TULIP seminars, and that's to improve patient outcomes. So for our very first Not Just Informed podcast, I'd like to summarize a systematic review that was published in 2017. It's got a long title, so here it goes. Clinical Classification and Low Back Pain, Best Evidence Diagnostic Rules Based on Systematic Reviews. This article was published by Peterson, Laslett, and Yule. If you want the full reference, feel free to reach out to us and we'll send it to you. This review, although drawing from evidence published from about five years ago now, still actually holds water when it comes to helping clinicians diagnose, among other conditions, the following. SI joint dysfunction, lumbar disc herniation with radiculopathy, lumbar central canal stenosis, and spondylolisthesis. All of these conditions are relatively common in manual therapy practitioners' offices. That's why this one is pretty important. Before I dive in, I have to mention one important thing. And I chose this article, actually this article type on purpose, not just the article for its content, but the article type. This is a systematic review of literature. So for a busy clinician, a systematic review should be the go-to type of evidence to help with decision-making with patients on the fly. Systematic reviews, as a reminder, when done well, summarize multiple sources of reliable and pertinent literature, not just a single study, but many. Sometimes they even pool data from all of those different studies. The systematic review, when done well, should save a clinician time. Who wants to do all that searching after all? And it should give them a lot more confidence in basing clinical decisions and changing practice behaviors accordingly. Alrighty, let's dive into this important systematic review. Since this article is all about helping us diagnose the conditions that I just mentioned about, and it's not really about, it's actually not at all about the effectiveness of certain therapies and treating them, I have to start off by reminding you about two really important terms to help you understand systematic reviews that look at the accuracy of diagnostic tests. And these terms are sensitivity and specificity. Again, you may have heard of these things, but it's a quick, quick refresher. Mathematically speaking, sensitivity is a measure of true positives. But without getting into the math, I would, or maybe trying to avoid the math, since many of us aren't really into math. Our son is, but maybe some of you aren't. 
I would like to just maybe use an example of a clinician in practice performing a test that they know has a sensitivity of 99%. The threshold for high is about 80%. So a test is considered highly sensitive if it has a sensitivity of 80% or higher. So let's say that clinician performs that test with 99% sensitivity on a patient and it tests positive and they get a gold standard confirmation that the patient actually has the condition. So that first patient is a true positive. Let's say they performed the same test again on another patient. It tests positive and it gets confirmed as being true, another true positive. That happens 99 times in a row. But what happens when all of a sudden that test turns up negative? What do you think the clinician immediately assumes? They assume, and very rationally and logically, that the patient doesn't have the condition. This clinical scenario, although somewhat made up, should help you understand the acronym SNOUT. A highly sensitive test, when negative, helps rule out a condition. SNOUT, by the way, is actually spelled S-N-N-O-U-T. So the S-N represents the highly sensitive test. The second N represents the test actually being negative. And then the word out represents the test ruling out a condition. So a highly sensitive test when negative helps rule out a condition. That acronym is something you should never forget. And if you think about that scenario of the 99% sensitive test, that particular test with such high sensitivity would be a very, very good screening test, a test to maybe start out your diagnostic inquiry with. Turns out a general rule is that highly sensitive tests are good screening tests. Let's move to sensitivity's dizygotic twin, specificity. Using a similar analogy, let's say a clinician performs a highly specific test on a patient. Let's say it's 99% specific. So they perform the test, the test is negative, and when confirmed, the patient actually does not have the condition. That's a true negative. They do that 99 times in a row. True negative, true negative, true negative, true negative. When all of a sudden the test actually is positive, what would be the rational conclusion that the clinician might make? Is that because the test was positive, the patient actually has the condition, or at least might have the condition. This underscores the acronym SPIN, a highly specific test when positive, helps rule in the condition. SPIN is actually spelt, that acronym is spelt S-P-P-I-N. S-P for highly specific test. The second P for testing positive, and the word in for ruling in a condition. A highly specific test when positive helps rule in a condition. That is something you absolutely have to know. 
when looking at articles just like this that discuss diagnostic accuracy of tests. All right, before I jump into the article, I just have to let you know about a clinical pearl here that I learned at one of my evidence-based practice trainings a long, long time ago. Clinicians can be fooled into staring at the shiny object. If someone tells you that a test has a 99% sensitivity, you could be fooled into thinking that that is an amazing screening test and you got to use it. Well, it turns out mathematically, you could be absolutely fooled. It's critical that you look at both the sensitivity and specificity of a test. Don't just look at one. Using that same example, if that test that someone said was amazing, had a 99% sensitivity, had at the same time a 1% specificity, that test would actually be clinically useless in predicting whether the patient had or didn't have a condition. The clinical pearl here is, is that if the sensitivity and specificity of a clinical test add up to 100 or 100%, the test is completely meaningless. I don't want to get into the mathematics of it, but it actually relates to something I'll talk about in a subsequent not just informed podcast, and that's a statistical term called a likelihood ratio, where sensitivities and specificities are actually combined. Don't want to go down that path today, but I just want to keep you informed here about this general rule. When sensitivity and specificity are added together of a test and it equates to 100%, the test is useless. Now let's jump into the article by Peterson, Laslett, and Yule. The aim of this article is to provide an evidence-based clinical prediction tool to help you diagnose the conditions I mentioned. Remember, it's not about determining the effectiveness of any therapy for these conditions. It's all about diagnosis, and that's why I mentioned sensitivity and specificity. Coming as no surprise, since manual therapists don't actually use gold standard tests like MRI or injections to confirm diagnoses in clinical practice, the clinical prediction tools in this article actually underscore that clinicians, particularly manual therapists, should never rely on the results of a single test. As such, these authors recommend a collection of findings to help diagnose a condition. And it's no surprise, the findings or tests that they recommend are those that are really, really or highly sensitive or specific. It should come as no surprise, but the findings or tests that they recommend using are those that are highly sensitive and or specific. All right, so the first condition is SI joint dysfunction. The authors suggest that the evidence supports the following as being key findings for diagnosing this particular condition. All right, let's move to the first condition, SI joint dysfunction. The authors suggest that the evidence supports the following. Localized pain to the SI joint. In other words, the patient points to their SI joint or thereabouts. In addition to localized pain to the SI joint, three of the following five tests should be positive. Gainsland's test, thigh thrust test, the sacral thrust test, the SI compression test, 
and the SI distraction test. I don't have time to talk about those tests today. It's difficult to describe them, but hopefully you know what those tests are. Statistically, the authors say that this rule has a sensitivity and specificity of about 90 and 80% respectively, both crossing that threshold for being clinically meaningful. This news may be redundant for the new graduate, but it actually might serve as a helpful tool to shift practice behaviors in those who have been in practice for some time and maybe have forgotten or weren't familiar with those tests or maybe didn't know much about sensitivities or specificities. I'll let you know in our practice in downtown Portland, when we suspect a patient has SI joint dysfunction, we're absolutely ensuring that we perform these five tests in a cluster to help support either the presence of SI joint dysfunction or the absence of it. All right, let's move to lumbar radiculopathy, the second condition they talk about in this article. The findings that seem to be statistically helpful, in other words, have high sensitivities and or specificities are, and most of these will come as no surprise, but it's nice to know that the evidence is supporting what you want to do in clinical practice. So the first finding is dermatomal pain within a specific nerve root distribution. The second is a straight leg raise producing those symptoms past the knee. Altered sensation within the chief complaint location is the third. Hyporeflexia is the fourth. And painless motor weakness specific to the nerve root presumed to be irritated as the last. They throw in a little bit of a bonus here and they say a bonus positive finding might be a positive cross straight leg raise or well straight leg raise. Again, not much new here other than validating what you're likely seeing and doing in practice, but again, this is putting the rubber to the road in evidence-based practice where you can actually feel confident that what you're doing can be defensible. That actually is probably a relief, but I'm just going to say we don't look to the evidence enough to help support our patterns of behavior in clinical practice. And that's what these short little podcasts, not just informed, are all about. Can we actually change your practice behaviors? We're hoping so. Absolutely. So to give you the practical application of how we use this type of information in our practice, if a patient presents with a positive straight leg raise, and let's say their history is suggestive of lumbar radiculopathy, if they present with a positive straight leg raise and knowing that it is a highly sensitive test with numbers in the 80, 90, 80 to 90% range, and the patient has sensory and motor deficits, has hyporeflexia, we follow up with specific confirmatory tests like Braggart's, Bowstrings, or Bonnet's, or Bonnet's test, pardon me, all of which have high specificities, again, above the 80% threshold. What we're trying to do here again is start off with a good screening test and follow with confirmatory tests. It's rational, it's logical, and it's evidence-based. All right. Let's move to the third condition, and that's lumbar central canal stenosis. The authors here are suggesting some interesting things here. They are suggesting that three of the following five historical findings should be positive to help you confirm the presence of this condition. 
First is age greater than 48. That's actually not a historical finding, technically. That's more epidemiological. The second finding is the symptoms should be bilateral, pain going down both legs. The third finding is that leg pain should be more evident to the patient than their back pain. The fourth is they should experience their familiar pain during walking or standing. And as you might guess, the last is they should get relief of symptoms once they sit down. Again, no real surprises here for the practicing clinician and the new graduate, I'm, I'm sure. Interestingly here, I have to say, no physical examination findings seem helpful for aiding diagnosis. And that's very different than the preceding conditions. It's important to note here that symptoms and not signs can help you rule in or rule out a condition. In other words, the specific questions that you ask a patient with suspected stenosis are the tests. This supports the idea of taking problem focus histories rather than just asking the same old questions every single time. All righty. Let's move on to the last condition that's addressed by these authors, and that's spondylolisthesis. The authors point not to historical questions, but they jump back to physical examination findings as being critical to aid diagnosis. So based on high sensitivities and specificities, the findings here that are high payoff are, one, palpatory intervertebral slip, by either inspection or palpation. And this is the classic step-off defect that you may have learned about or heard about. Second finding is segmental passive hypermobility. And that would be where the doctor is pushing P to A on the spine, in the lumbar spine and noticing some excess movement in one segment over another. And then lastly, in the elderly population, a positive passive leg extension test. Again, don't have time or a way to really explain what that test is. Hopefully we'll be doing a live seminar sometime soon when it's safe and we can go over this test. All right, so those are the four conditions that the authors primarily focused on in this particular systematic review. Again, it's a systematic review of the literature. It was done really well. Very, very low levels of bias in this particular systematic review. So it's super trustworthy. So those four common conditions that we see in manual therapy practice now have some good solid evidence to help support us when we're in practice to change our practice behavior. All right, we did it. First, Not Just Informed podcast is in the books. Stay tuned for our next one and be sure to visit us at tulipseminars.com. As always, we welcome any and all of your feedback and suggestions. And to all of you in our Tulip community and beyond, be healthy, be safe. <laughs>